morning, everybody. Uh, pumped to get into the Word this morning. Uh, I hope it warms your hearts because it's cold outside, all right? It is freezing. Uh, but hey, we are in part two of a three-part series we are calling Crave. Uh, we're looking at 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 15 through 17. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to say these right here on the screen. Let's, let's hop right into it today. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything that we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. And the world is fading away. Say this part in the yellow with me when we get there. Along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live. All right, so we talked about this last week. All sin falls into one of these three categories. Uh, it falls into uh, the craving for physical pleasure. That's, that's our flesh. Right? A craving for the things that we see. That's our, our eyes. And then the pride of life. In other translations, it actually refers to it as the lust. So it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we looked at this last week, how, how John didn't just pull these three categories out of the air. Uh, he actually uh, pulled these from Scripture. Uh, we see these three present at the fall in the garden, uh, when sin entered the world. Let's read it real quick, Genesis 3.6. I pushed it too hard, apparently. Lost it. We're back, all right? Uh, the woman was convinced, this is Eve, she saw that the tree was beautiful, right? Her, her eyes, she saw that its fruit looked delicious. It was going to satisfy her, her physical cravings. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her, the pride of life. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. So we see uh, that all sin, those three categories, that was actually present in the garden. That Eve saw it. She saw that it was beautiful, all right? It was the cravings of the eyes, that it would fulfill her physically, the, the cravings of the flesh, and that it would make her wise like God, the pride of life. So Adam and Eve, uh, they're tempted, and, and they failed this temptation. But we also see in the New Testament, uh, we see when Jesus is tempted by Satan, he hits them with the same three areas in Matthew 4. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, uh, and, and he comes out, and the devil tempts Jesus. He said, hey, turn these stones into bread, right, the cravings of the flesh. Jesus rejects the temptation, and he quotes scripture. Again, the devil says, hey, if you're really the son of God, throw yourself off this temple, and angels will come and catch you. You won't even stub your toe, right? He's talking about the pride of life. You're the son of God. That's what he's trying to get at. If you really are, just jump off. Jesus, again, rejects that temptation, and he quotes Scripture. Then the devil takes him up uh, so he can see all the kingdoms of the world. He says, uh, if you bow to me, all that you see will be yours. That's the cravings of the eyes. Jesus, again, rejects temptation, and he quotes Scripture. In the garden, through, through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. But then on the cross, through one man, sin was defeated for the world through Jesus. So each week we're zooming in on one of these cravings that the world offers. And uh, last week we looked at the flesh and how, how Samson, he, he really struggled with his physical desires. And they actually, his, his struggles, he succumbed to them. They cost him greatly. He, he lost his eyes and he lost his life. But we also saw how even in his failures, God didn't leave him. He didn't leave him alone. He was right 
there with him. And today, we're going to be looking at the cravings of the eyes. Uh, and so th- we're going to walk through this, and we're going to look at somebody who struggled with this. But the cravings of the eyes isn't primarily about the things that you're looking at. Although it, it could be, but it's not primarily about the things that you're looking at. Uh, the primary issue with the cravings of the eyes is the reason you're looking. Uh, you are looking at something that you want. And for a lot of people, when they think about the cravings of the eyes, we kind of go uh, to the, the extreme there. So th- their minds go to one thing, and they talk about uh, it's pornography. Well, definitely an issue. Uh, and so, uh, but the lust of the eyes is more about why you're looking at something than what it is you're looking at. So uh, in the instance of pornography, it's an issue of both what you're looking at and why you are looking at it. Uh, uh, but our eyes can lead us astray in more than just that one way. So the lust of the eyes can be found just as much in the heart of the person checking Zillow, looking at houses that they can't afford, envying these houses and seeing these, just as much as the person looking at porn. You guys track with me on that? It's about why we're looking at it. That's the primary issue is why, the why. Why are we looking at the things that we're looking at? Why are you looking at the things you're looking at? Remember, Satan corrupts what God creates. Uh, last week, we talked about the cravings of the flesh. And the example for our flesh, right, food is good. Gluttony is a sin. Sex, in the proper context, it's good. But immorality and sleeping around is a sin. Satan corrupts what God creates. When it comes to our eyes, it's good to look at what's going on around you. You can seize an opportunity to serve people that are in need. But it's a sin to look at others and to wish you had what they had. That's our eyes spurring us towards, towards jealousy when really they should be spurring us towards service. Uh, as I was getting everything ready for this week, there's a passage that just, uh, it, it jumped out to me uh, as I was preparing the message. And so we're going to look at it. It's Matthew 9, uh, 36, and it says, this is Jesus. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were f- confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It says Jesus saw the crowds, and then he had compassion on them because uh, he saw them with his eyes. It starts with the eyes. We, we talked about this a few weeks ago. What has your attention has your affection. If something has your eyes, it has your attention. You're focused on it. And if it has your attention, it has your affection. What your eyes focus on leads you down a path because uh, where your eyes are is eventually going to lead uh, to an action. I got two, two quick examples. Uh, basketball practice, every week we do this drill. It's like a conditioning drill. Uh, and we have the kids get on the baseline. And then I blow the whistle and they jump as far as they can. And then they land. And then they can't move their feet. And then they got to jump again. Uh, and it's really fun. But like every week there's like two or three kids and they jump like this. Right? They don't go nearly as far and they go sideways. Uh, because it has nothing to do with their ability to jump or ability to jump straight where are their eyes? Their eyes are looking at everybody else, and they jump not as far as they could, and they jump into other people's lanes, all right? Uh, They do it because they're focused on others. And every week, I'm like, come on, guys, eyes straight ahead, eyes straight ahead. Your eyes lead you towards action. Where you're focused, that's where you're going to go eventually. Um, And then I got another example uh, of where you're looking determines where you'll go. Uh, My son Cooper and I, we stopped at Schlotzky's the other night after practice, it's been a hot minute since I've been to a Schlotzky's, uh, which I definitely spelt Schlotzky's wrong in my notes here. I don't know how to spell it. Um, but we go through and we, we get our food, and uh, 
you know, Slotsky's is like paired with Cinnabon now. That's a new thing since I've been in there. And so we go to check out, and as we're ordering, my eye catches uh, this freshly made, warm Cinnabon cinnamon rolls just right there in this completely clear container right by checkout. And I am staring at them. And they are staring back at me, and they're saying one thing, eat me, right? They, they, they just want me to eat them. And, and why am I looking at them? I'm looking at them because I, I want them. Uh, they look good. Even Schlotsky's nose, it starts with your eyes, all right? All right, they've got these cinnamon rolls in that clear case right by checkout because they know once you start looking at them, man, it's a lot easier to get one than they have at the back, right? If they're right there, it's easy. Praise God, Coop and I made it out of there without any cinnamon rolls, right? You, no temptation has overtaken you. We made it out. Uh, but your eyes are incredibly important. Where you look is eventually going to be where you go. You stare at those cinnamon rolls long enough, eventually you're going to order them. Because it doesn't just stay with where we're looking. It eventually leads to action. It could be a negative action. could be a positive action. But I want you to know Satan corrupts what God creates. The enemy wants us to use our eyes to, to look at our neighbors and to be filled with uh, envy and jealousy and bitterness. God wants us to look at our neighbors and to, and to love them. To love them in their successes, to cheer them on, and to, to love them in their failures, to, to comfort them, to come alongside them. And today we're going to look at a character from Scripture that uh, his eyes got him into trouble. Looking around and desiring things that are not his. As, it, as it's often the case with uh, our eyes, it doesn't just end with looking. Uh, we're going to look at uh, King David. Um, and David is described as a man after God's own heart. He was the, the second king of Israel. Side note, a couple weeks, we're starting a four-week series on the first king of Israel. It's going to be super good. Uh, but David, he came from humble beginnings. Uh, he was a shepherd, same David from the story of David and Goliath when he's like this teenager who takes down a giant. Uh, because David's life is a lot, there's a lot more stories about the Bible, in the Bible about David, uh, we're going to just parachute right into this point in his life where his eyes get him into trouble. Uh, so we got the whole story of Samson, but David's got a lot more there. So we're going to hop right in to where he, he gets into some trouble here. All right, this is 2 Samuel 11. Uh, we're going to get through basically most of this chapter. It says, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege on the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Uh, at this time, it's not uncommon right, for, for a kingdom to be at war. Uh, what is uncommon is for the king to stay home while his army battles. Uh, David is at home in the palace while his army is in battle. Remember, it says it right there at the beginning. When kings normally go out to war. Let's go to verse 2. Say that yellow part with me when we get there. One late afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he, over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath, All right? So, so one day after his nap, David gets up. He's walking around looking out over his city, and he sees a beautiful woman, and she is bathing, so he sees all of her, right? And there is some, some dispute as to David's intent as to why he's on the roof. Some people say he was, like, intentionally looking for 
a show. Others say, hey, he might have just been going out to the patio to get some fresh air after a nice siesta. Like, uh, and this time, uh, think about it, there's no AC. So a midday nap uh, to avoid the, the full strength of the sun, avoid when it's hot, it was actually a pretty common thing. Uh, but we don't really know, the Bible is not clear about David's intent. But the intent is really in- irrelevant uh, because even if this was an accident, his actions after this are reprehensible. And then there's another time where people think, why would she go out and bathe at this time? Like, is this her trying to provoke the king? There's actually a case to be made that Bathsheba is trying to be discreet because she's doing this when everybody, like, is usually inside asleep. They are literally taking a siesta. I don't know if you've ever been to, like, a place where that happens. Went on a mission trip to Mexico once, and people take a siesta every day. And we went to go to, like, the convenience store, and it was a siesta you're locked out, all right? They, they, they take napping seriously. So, so she's trying to do the right thing. She's trying to be discreet. So what does David do after he, he sees her? What does he do after he sees her out there? Verse three, he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Um, okay, so now David knows who she is. She is not a single lady. Lady, she is the wife of Uriah. Uh, a little backstory: uh, David has a group of men that are called his mighty warriors. Uh, before uh, the king, before David, uh, actually was actively trying to take David out, like trying to to kill him so that he wouldn't become the next king. And David essentially has uh, this group of mighty warriors that defected, basically. They left the previous king to come to David because they believed that David was the one God had anointed as the new king. So they, they literally uh, betray the first king because God has spoken and they believe that God is with David. These are his mighty warriors. Uriah is one of David's mighty warriors. So not only is Bathsheba married, but she is married to one of the men who has faithfully served David even before he was king. So what does he do with this information, right? She's married. Uh, she's married to a man that has faithfully served me for years. Here's what it says. So David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed her purification rites after having her period. Then she returned home. Scripture doesn't give us really any indication about her attitude towards David uh, from him summoning her. And so uh, there's a little, it's not super clear, but at best, this was a consensual affair. At worst, this is a gross misuse of power uh, by David in sexual assault. I think it's probably more likely the latter. But what has your attention has your affection. David's eyes were focused on Bathsheba. Remember, your eyes are eventually going to lead to action. His eyes led him to give into the cravings of his flesh. All right, that last sentence there is kind of like, why is that there? It's there because of this next verse. Later, when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she sent a message to David saying, I'm pregnant, all right? Uh, So, uh, hey, there is a baby now, and there is a problem for David. It's that Uriah, he's been away at this battle for a long time. So everybody's going to know that this child is not Urias. What does David, this man of God, do? Does he, does he fess up? Uh, does he let the truth come out? Not, 
Not exactly. David sends word to his commander, and he says, hey, Joab, uh, send Uriah home. Send Bathsheba's husband home. And when Uriah gets there, uh, David uh, says, hey, how's the commander doing with his troops? How how is the war progressing? He's basically uh, just small talk about the war. And then in verse 8, here's what he says. Then he told Uriah, David told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. David is trying to abandon his child and make it appear as if it's Uriah's son. He's trying to deceive a man who has served him faithfully, literally fought numerous battles to help David out. David's trying to deceive him. He's trying to abandon his own son. Let's keep going. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab, that's the commander, and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Uriah, he's a man of character. He's saying the armies of Israel and Judah, they're they're living in tents. They're they're camping out in fields, these warriors. How could I go and enjoy the comfort of my wife and my home when, when there are men living out there and camping and there's literally men dying? Uriah wasn't thinking about the cravings of his flesh or his needs. He was thinking about others, how he needed to do the honorable thing. And this is an issue for David. So David's like, all right, he's not going to go. I need plan B. Uh, you go ahead and stay here. Uh, and you think, all right, hey, David's going to show some compassion to this man who's, who's served him for years. Uh, he's going to do uh, the honorable thing. He's going to be won over. Not, not exactly. Uh, David invites him in. Let's see if we can't get this to go here. Then David invited him to dinner. And got him drunk. All right, if he won't do what I want him to do sober, let's see if he'll do it drunk, right? That's, that's basically where, where David is at here. And here's what it says, last part of the verse. But even then, he couldn't get to Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. He can't even get him to do what he wants him to do when he's drunk. He tried to deceive and outwit Uriah because David has done this dishonorable thing. But Uriah's integrity is greater than David's. So plan A didn't work. He tried to get him to go home. Uh, Plan B, he tried to get him to get drunk because he wouldn't go home. That didn't work. David resorts to plan C. Here's what it says in the next verse. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. So he writes a note for the commander, and then he has Uriah take it to that commander, and here's what it says. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. David gives Uriah a letter to tell his commander to kill Uriah. 
want you to think about that. Uh, this is somebody who trusts David so much, he's not going to peek at this letter, and if he did, he would find a command that's going to kill him. And David's trying to do it in a way so that, hey, Uriah's going to die in battle. Uh, he's not going to die because his king betrayed him. So uh, Bob assigned Uriah to that spot, uh, and in verse 17, uh, we see Uriah's fate here. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. David got what he wants. Uh, he, he, he has Uriah killed. And so Joab, the commander, he sends this battle report back to David. He's a little worried about it uh, because, yes, Uriah died, but so did, like, a lot of other soldiers. And it, it happened in a way that would make it look like a tactical error. Like, so Job, he's telling his messenger, hey, David might get upset because, like, we, it would be kind of like a dumb move to do what we did. That's kind of what he's thinking. So here's, here's the message that Joab gives to his messenger. He might get angry. He's saying, David might get angry and ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Like, obviously, this is not a safe place to be, to be near the walls. Uh, wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Like, this wall has a reputation, not even from arrows killing people, but from giant stones killing people. Why would you get so close to the wall? And then tell him Uriah the Hittite was killed too. I think it's pretty clear from this that uh, it cost a lot more than Uriah's life for David to cover up this sin. It, it did cost Uriah his life, but it cost other men that were ready to go into battle for David. It cost them their life because they wouldn't uh, disobey an order because they were going to do what their king had asked them. So in order to kill Uriah, Joab had to put others in, in danger too. So uh, when the messenger tells David this, he, he hears about some of these losses. Uh, he's afraid he's going to be upset because this is a dangerous area. Uh, but as soon as you tell him that people died, finish by telling him Uriah was killed too. And this messenger, he does exactly what Joab says. And in verse 25, it tells us how David responds to hearing that message. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. David's just killed Uriah and other men. Uh, his desire to cover sin ended up costing these men their lives, including a man that had faithfully served him years and his response to Job is hey dig in win the war conquer the city and then there's the other part of Bathsheba her her husband has just died in battle and here's what it says happens when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead she mourned for him. She didn't even get to talk to him. He wanted to do the right thing, the God-honoring thing. He came, he came back to the city and he never got to see her. Uh, so she, she mourned 
And then in verse 27, when the period of mourning was over, there was like an allotted amount of time for mourning uh, in, in this time period. Uh, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she also gave birth to their son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. David, he waits for this period of mourning to be over. He brings her into the palace. Hey, you're one of my wives now. He wasted no time to make her his. After all, it's, he's had to do a lot to do this. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. That was a long thread that we pulled on for these things that happened and continue to go. And it all started with his eyes, what he was focused on, with what had his attention. It started with a look, a desire to have that which was not his. And that look and that desire turned into an action. Church, your, your attention matters. What your eyes are looking at matters. What has your focus matters. It could be your downfall or it could be your salvation. Are your eyes focused on Jesus and his kingdom or are they focused on the things of this world, these things that will fade away? Jesus and his kingdom are forever. This world and the cravings that it offers will all fade away one day. Keep your eyes fixed on the right things. Keep your eyes fixed on the Jesus things. If you came in, you're feeling a little defeated by the cravings of your eyes or maybe your, your flesh, or maybe the pride of life, I've got good news. Well, it's kind of good news and bad news, all right? You, you crave what you consume. The way you change what you crave is to change what you consume. Uh, if you eat junk food all the time, your body will crave junk food, right? Guilty. I want a Swiss roll right now, all right? All right, what you crave what you consume. You eat healthy food all the time, your body will crave healthy food. Uh, quick story, uh, when I was in college, I had a job at Sam's Club. Uh, and at Sam's Club, uh, I could get like my 88 or 44 ounce drink that those styrofoam cups they have. Uh, and like for 80 cents, you could fill it up all day long. As long as you bought a new cup every day, you could refill it while you worked. And I was like, I'm gonna get the pizza combo and I'm gonna refill this sucker all day long. Uh, you can file that under reasons why in my wedding pictures, I look like the marshmallow man, okay, uh, with a tie. Uh, but, but it got to the point where if I didn't have a Coke, because I was drinking so much there, uh, that I'd get a headache. So on my weekends when I was off, like, I would have these terrible headaches. And uh, they would bother me. And I, it just got to the point where I was like, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit drinking Coke. I'm going to quit drinking carbonated beverages. I'm sick of feeling bad and, and the headaches and getting attached to it. Um, and so I just made a decision right then. Hey, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do this. And I can say that I haven't had a Coke or a soda for like a year before Cooper was born. And can I tell you something? After not drinking a Coke for almost 10 years, I do not have any craving or desires for a Coke. Like zero, zilch, nada. I've had a few instances where we've had like something in a cup and it's a dark straw so you can't see what color it is. I think it's my tea, it's Kelsey's Coke. Y'all, it's nasty. It tastes like disgusting syrup. And the carbonation makes my eyes water and my throat burn. It's awful. I have no desire, I have no cravings to drink a Coke. I used to have really strong cravings. Like I, my body would be like, I need this. You'd get a headache when I didn't have it. 
and now it doesn't even sound good. Why am I going off on drinking a Coke? Because you crave what you consume. You crave what you consume. And that's, that could be good news, depending on what you're consuming, or that could be bad news, depending on what you are consuming, what you're consuming with your eyes, what you're looking at. You guys have probably heard the story about the two wolves inside of you where, where one is good and, and one is evil, and they're in a battle to win. And, and which one wins? The one you feed, right? When it comes to the craving of our eyes, the less of the eyes, your cravings will grow towards the things of this world or the ways of Jesus. Which direction are you headed? Are you moving towards being more like Jesus with what you look at? Or are you moving towards being more like the world? Remember, God wants us to use our eyes for the kingdom. And when we see things, it will put us into action. It's never just a look. It will eventually turn into an action. Make sure you're focusing at, looking at, and focusing on the things that honor God. The actions will align with his values. Because whatever has your attention has your affection. You can change what you consume. It'll change your cravings. We need to get into the word. We need to crave the things of the Lord, not the things of this world. Let's pray.